the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good morning. Good Monday morning. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, but as you probably have figured out by now, obviously I am not Dave. So this is like tuning in to look at a a two-and-a-half-man episode, and you're wanting Charlie Sheen, but you see it's Ashton Kutcher. Or you tune in and you're looking for a Three Stooges and you're wanting to see Curly, but you got the shimp. So you got to stand in. I'll do the best I can. Dave is on a well-deserved vacation where I was just last week on the coast of Florida. I got out of there ahead of the hurricane. My best wishes to those people that are still there. Dave works hard to keep us informed, keep us motivated, keep us educated, and keep us entertained. So he deserves his break, and I'll do the best I can. My name's Ed Monk. I'll be the guest host for today and only today right now. I want to thank Dave for the opportunity to let me come in here and do it, but also at the same time, you got to question his judgment just a little bit on doing so. But I've got training wheels. Heidi's going to try to keep me generally in line. She's got a shock collar on me, so if I get out of bounds a little bit, she's going to zap me and bring me back in. And I've been told I'm probably going to be one of the top five guest hosts that they have this week, so I'm pretty excited about that. So a little bit about me. I've been on Dave's show a lot from time to time, but this is my first time guest hosting. I was born and raised in Whitehall, about 30 miles south of Little Rock. Great place. Absolutely great place to grow up and live. It still is. It's safe. It's friendly. The whole city is filled with volunteers that keep the city running great. And my whole adult life being away from there, once I moved away, I would always tell people there's a whole lot right about Whitehall, about everything there and growing up there. After graduating from Whitehall High School in 83, I spent uh, four years hard labor at the Military Academy at West Point. If you have any questions about that place, uh, feel free to call in and ask, but understand everything I know about it is over 30 years old. It's kind of like prison, but the food's better and the uniforms are nicer. After graduating there, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army as an armor officer, so specializing in tanks and cavalry, and I spent just a little over 20 years as a commissioned officer in the Army, retiring in 2007. I was stationed at Fort Knox, Kentucky four times, Germany once. That was my first assignment as a lieutenant for three and a half years in Bombholder, Germany, with the 8th Infantry Division. Then I was in Texas at Fort Hood, where I commanded a, a tank company in the 1st Cavalry Division. I was stationed in California twice, once at the Presidio of San Francisco, and then in the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, which is close to Barstow, California in the south. I was at Fort Lewis, Washington, Fort Monroe, Virginia, 
Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and that was for an assignment, not to be in prison there. And then thanks to you people, thanks to the taxpayers, I had one all-expenses-paid trip to Iraq in 2006. So that's the places I've been. I retired as a lieutenant colonel in 2007 as a cavalry squadron commander. When I retired from the Army, I taught high school for four years in both uh, Kentucky and a very great school district in Kentucky, and I taught one year here in Arkansas. I was a deputy sheriff in Louisville, Kentucky for a couple of years before I moved down here. I'm now a part-time police officer in Whitehall. And along with my brother, uh, we own and operate Last Resort Farms Training in near just outside the city limits of Whitehall, in the Whitehall area. So that's a little bit about me. My plan for this morning, we're going to start talking about defensive handgun use um, and training, because that's kind of in my wheelhouse for that, both in the home and for those of us who carry outside the home. We'll just talk about some of the basics, and what I'd really like to do is counter some of the comments that we often hear from students and people that we kind of have to uh, address then maybe talk about the active shooter threat. And so that's something I've specialized in and I've studied pretty hard for like the last 15 years or so. It's something that we as a nation talk about an awful lot, especially right after big attacks, but we don't really do anything about it. And that's why we're, that's not getting any better. And that's kind of a crusade I'm on is to try to make the results of active shooter attacks uh, better, meaning fewer victims. Since Uvalde, I've been traveling quite a bit all over the country providing training and my calendar is still full for that we'll talk about that when we get to it then from the 9 to 10 a.m hour my brother mike monk will call in and he'll talk about precision rifle classes that he provides for those interested in that kind of foolishness of using ouija boards and bloody chicken's foot and all the voodoo that's required to use scopes and rifles and hit things at long ranges i don't do that foolishness but for those of you who do he'll call in and talk a little bit about that so for guns um, we own last resort farms training just north of whitehall we train people in defensive gun use 90 percent plus of what we deal with is with handguns we do the class required for the concealed carry license the in, the enhancement of the carry license we host a defensive handgun match once a month so this is a, a an event where you show up and it's you get to train more dynamically so you're drawing your gun from a holster shooting multiple targets multiple times sometimes shooting on the move sometimes shooting from behind cover sometimes shooting one-handed so it's much more dynamic than just standing there and shooting like people do on most ranges and it is a competition but people say well i'm not good enough to shoot in a competition and we say well don't think of it as a competition think think of it as just a way uh, to allow you and require you to use your pistol in a more dynamic, realistic way for those of us that carry outside the home. You don't even have to look at the scores if you don't want to. But you're, you're graded, you're scored in that match on a balance of accuracy and speed, and that's what kind of a gunfight is, is the balance of accuracy and speed. We do a lot of private lessons, and that can range a wide variety of skill levels and, and skills. So we do a lot of very basic people that don't even have a gun yet, but they want to come learn more about it before they make the decision to get one and the decision of which gun to get. And that's very important because a lot of times if you go to buy a gun, you get what looks good, what feels good in your hand in the gun store or the gun that the the worker, the, the person at the gun store wanted you to buy. No one goes out and buys 
hopefully not many people go will go out and buy an expensive car and make the decision of what car to get simply by sitting in it in the showroom you want to take it out and drive it and feel what it's like to drive it in the highway on the city going up hills going around curves and so it's important uh to make when you make a decision of what gun to get to actually what we call test drive it which is shoot it because how a gun feels in your hand just holding it is quite a bit different than how it feels when you're shooting it so a lot of our private lessons are for basic level beginner people, or it could have been someone who's just purchased a gun and wants to get learn more about it and get more comfortable with it. But we have more advanced skills we can work in private lessons, such as drawing from a concealed holster, shooting rapidly, shooting on the move, clearing malfunctions for those of us who have or carry semi-automatic weapons, rapid reloading, building clearing, shooting from in your car, so we can the private lessons go from very basic all the way up to more advanced skills. We do three levels of handgun fighting classes because if you have taken the class required to get your license to carry, you know that that's an administrative information class. It really doesn't teach you how to fight with a gun. So we have three levels of handgun fighting classes. We used to schedule those, uh, but we don't anymore because we've run out of weekends. We've got so much, so many other things going on. So now we do those only basically if people call up, a group calls up and wants one of those classes. We'll try to schedule and fit those in. And then my specialty area is the active shooter. So we have active shooter response classes. We do. We have a one day, a two day, and a three day class for that. We give those to armed church security teams armed school staff for those schools in arkansas and elsewhere uh, next month or actually in november i'm going to mississippi to train an armed school staff there and we do it for cops and we do open enrollment just to get people better mentally gear wise and skill wise better prepared to stop an active shooter and then we also give active shooter instructor classes and that brings in instructors from all over the country that want to incorporate what we have learned and what we have developed so far in active shooter response. And I used to do two a year, but since Uvalde, the demand's gone up so much, I'm doing five in 2022, and I'll do, as of now, five scheduled in 2023. The next one's coming up uh, next month now in October. And we host nationally inst- nationally known instructors. So we use our range to bring in good instructors that we've had experience with and like, and we just think they're great instructors or they do something unique or different. And so we bring them in, and I kind of relate it to Broadway shows. I know a lot of people here won't fly to New York City to see Wicked or Hamilton or Phantom, but they will go to Robinson. They will drive to Little Rock to do it if the show comes here. So we know a lot of these great instructors uh, that we we have trained with uh, that we know people here won't drive to Virginia or Florida or Washington State or California or wherever these nationally known instructors are, but they'll, they'll drive to our location if we bring that instructor in. So Tom Gibbons is one, one of my mentors. Uh, We've hosted him two or three times before. He's coming next month to teach a five-day handgun instructor class. So over 90% of what we do is handguns, but we do dabble a little bit in carbine and shotgun. And again, one of my brother's specialties is precision rifle. And since Uvalde, of course, like I said, I've been very busy with the active shooter thing. Uh, Before now, I've been to California, Las Vegas, uh, Washington, where I trained a private school up there, Wyoming. I uh, spoke at the Wyoming School Resource Officer School Safety Conference in Missouri. I was a speaker at the Faith-Based Security Network Conference. The Faith-Based Security Network is a national organization for church security, and they held their annual conference in Missouri back in July. 
And I was a speaker there, and the great thing about that is I got to meet some people that I had heroes that I had wanted to meet. Stephen Williford, the the hero of the Sutherland Springs church attack, was there. Jack Wilson, the hero of uh, the White Settlement church attack, uh, both of those in Texas, both of those heroes were there. And I got to talk to them and learn more about their attacks and what they did. Found out some things I didn't know and found out some things I thought I knew because of what I had read in other places was not true. So that was cool. And Heidi, again, has shocked me with the dog shot collar she's put around my neck to tell me to shut up, that we have a break coming up. And so I'll turn it over to Heidi and we'll go to the break. I hope it's somewhat stimulating, but it's not with Dave. All right, I have been told the Facebook Live is not working. Facebook Live is not working, and that's probably not a bad thing because you probably don't want to look at me today. But the the website is, so you can listen on the website, listen on your radio, and you can do that completely free of charge, by the way, and I guarantee you it'll be worth every cent of that. Uh, before the break, well, let me get back to the phone call. If you want to call in, ask questions, uh, talk to me about any of this stuff, 501-823-0965 is the call that you can do that on. Before break, I was talking about the places that I've traveled since Uvalde uh, for the active shooter training. Uh, was in Pennsylvania. And then this month, early this month, I was in Maine training a, a sheriff's department up there. Hancock County, Maine uh, hosted me up there to do presentations for school leaders, uh, law enforcement, and other emergency management people up there. And Maine was one of the four states I had not been to in my life, so that allowed me to check that off. Plus, I saw an old Army buddy while I was up there, so that was cool. Upcoming on my calendar for active shooter training, I go next month to San Diego. Uh, A large church that also has a private school out there is bringing me out to talk to their church and school security people. I'll be in Mississippi training the armed school staff of a school there. I'll go to Iowa first to speak at a college and then to speak to a group uh, in Des Moines. And then also while I'm up there, I'll take a trip over to Omaha and speak to a group there. In Nashville, a big online and retail store called the Glock Store used to be in California. They moved about a year ago to Nashville to get to free America. And I will be in Nashville at the Glock store in January uh, giving presentations there. Uh, Tentatively in Quincy, Washington, which is right about in the middle, pretty much in nowhere. uh, Tentatively, I'll be going there in February. I'll be in Austin to speak at the annual conference of the Texas State Rifle Association. I'm going to go to Poughkeepsie, New York in March. a fire chief that was at one of my presentations in Pennsylvania from Poughkeepsie, New York, was there, and now he's invited me up to Poughkeepsie to give presentations to their emergency management, EMS, fire, and police department. And that's only about an hour north of West Point. I'm a little scared of going back up there that they'll revoke my parole and put me back in. But as of now, I'm going to go up. Oregon, uh, south of Portland, there's a g- big gun uh, club up there that's going to bring me up to do several days of training, which is going to include live fire. 
In March, I'll be, I'll be a speaker for the third time at the Alita Conference in St. Louis, which is the International Law Enforcement Educators, Educators and Trainers Association, and then at the National Tactical Conference in Dallas. So that's what I have on my calendar coming up for active shooter training. But talking just about guns, self-defense guns, let's talk about just choosing a handgun. Now, this is what we found is counterintuitive to a lot of people because they'll say, well, I'm thinking about just getting something small and easy to shoot. Those two things don't coexist. That's like saying I want a huge truck or a huge SUV that gets great gas mileage. Those, those two things don't coexist right now. And what's, what seems to be counterintuitive to a lot of people is bigger guns are actually easier to fight with. Now, if you have really small hands, then the biggest handguns may be too big for you. But without that, bigger guns are better. And that's why if you look at all police uniform, they're carrying larger, what we call service size handguns, because they are the easiest to fight with. You can get all of your hands on them so you can control them better. The parts are bigger. Uh, so it's easier to manipulate. The sights are bigger, so they grab your eyes. You don't have to hunt for the sights. They're very easy to pick up and use. The gun is just easier to manipulate, whether you're working the slide, loading the magazine, hitting the magazine release button, or any of the other things on the gun. A bigger gun takes the recoil better, meaning if you're the shooter, the bigger the gun, even though you're shooting the same ammunition, with the same force, the bigger the gun, the heavier the gun, the less recoil you'll feel because the, the force of the recoil is coming back over a wider space on your hands. And then, of course, capacity. The bigger guns hold more ammo. So by every measurable standard, a bigger gun is a better gun, an easier gun to fight with more effectively than a smaller gun. So if someone says, I'm, one, I'm looking for a gun just for home defense, it won't leave the home, then you want to go big. Because wherever that gun's going to be, a drawer, the nightstand, wherever it is you keep that gun at home, your furniture does not care how big that gun is. So maximize it to get the best possible gun. So go big if it's just going to be a home gun. But now a subset of defensive handguns is a gun you want, you'll carry. That probably is going to make a difference because while your furniture doesn't care how big your gun at home is, most of us do care how big the gun is that we're carrying. The weight, the bulk, the ability to conceal it, uh, most of us care. So what we generally say is start with the biggest gun and ask yourself, am I the one you would have for home and say, am I willing to carry this concealed seven days a week for the rest of my life? And for 90, probably 95% of people, that answer is no. So don't feel bad if you say, I'm not going to carry that big, bulky thing, because most people won't. Well, then just back off. Go, go to the next, you know, the, just a little bit smaller than that. Are you willing to carry that? If the answer is no, then just keep going down in size and weight until you get to the handgun that you say, okay, that one I will carry every day. Then that's your carry gun. It's not quite as good as the biggest gun. But a good smaller gun that you're carrying really, really beats the, the better gun that you left at home because it's too big and bulky. And honestly, any gun is better than no gun if you're carrying it and you can get it out and use it. Any gun is 100 times better than a cell phone if you're carrying it and you're, you're able to get it out and put it to use. Another thing we hear is, uh, what's, a, what's a good gun for a woman? Well, that doesn't really exist. Uh, guns aren't masculine or feminine. They're just a tool. 
And if we were going to split up and play a rugby game, then male, there's a great difference between males and females, and males just have a huge advantage in that. But not shooting a gun. Shooting a gun is holding something and moving one finger. That's not a masculine thing or a feminine thing. So there isn't a gun that's good for women. Um, it's just the, the gun that's, that's good for the individual. Unfortunately, a lot of times uh, people in gun stores, gun people, husbands, whatever, they'll try to push women toward revolvers. Um, the only selling point to revolvers is they're simple. They're extremely simple in how to operate, but they're much harder to fight with. And that's why when I was a young person, a young man, back in the 70s and 80s, almost every uniform cop you saw was carrying a revolver. Because that's really the technology of the time. But you never see a cop carrying a revolver today, and that's because we have better technology. You don't see cops patrolling in 1965 Buicks because we have better technology today. So don't push a woman towards a revolver because that's a gun for a woman. Push push a male or a female toward the gun that's best for them. The, the two biggest traits you want in a gun are they're simple and they're reliable. They're simple and they're reliable. And there are some name brands that are less reliable than normal. And there are some models or types of guns that several brands may make that are just less reliable than average or less reliable than the better ones. So pick the, the models and the brands that are most likely to go bang when you need it to go bang and pick the most simple models. Uh, um so things like thumb safeties, and this is another counterintuitive thing. Well, I want a safety on my gun because it allowed to make the gun safe. No, not necessarily. You know, millions of cops carried revolvers for 100 years in our country that never had a safety on them, and we didn't need one. Most guns, most handguns don't need a safety. So pick one that doesn't need one, that doesn't have one, so that's, not, that's one less thing you got to worry about doing. And then decockers. If you don't know what a decocker is, then that tells you you don't need it on the gun. It's one more thing you have to know about, work, and do under stress. So don't do that. And then lasers. There's some fascination with lasers. They're cool. They're high-tech. Uh, and they think, well, if I use a laser, I can't miss. Yeah, you can. Uh, we don't generally miss because we can't line up the gun. We miss because our hand movement while we pull the trigger uh, pulls the gun back off. So you just want a simple gun that... All you have to do is get it out of the holster and put it to work with a lot of extra stuff. So we'll get back and talk more about this in just a little bit. All right, we left off talking about choosing a handgun. And the last thing I'll put there is we get a lot of people, again, with that say, well, a woman just needs a revolver. And the undertone there is, I guess, they're just too stupid to figure out a semi-auto, and that's not the truth. They need a gun that's best for them. Don't push them toward a gun that's of a lesser technology. Another thing we'll hear with women, and but anybody, they'll say, well, the best home defense gun is a, sh- a shotgun. Now, you just get your wife a shotgun. Okay, uh, shotguns, if loaded with buckshot or slug, if you get a good hit, they are de- that is devastating. That is a devastating stopping round. But a shotgun takes two hands to manipulate and fire and use. It's long and cumbersome if you need to go through doorways and hallways. 
the capacity is very small, meaning ammunition. You've probably only got four or five, maybe six rounds in it. Now, if you get a hit with one of those, it's devastating. But you have a low capacity. The recoil on shotguns is pretty severe. And one of the biggest reasons they say give someone a shotgun who's, who's lesser trained is they what the the assumption there is well the shot spreads out so you don't really have to be good you don't have to aim because the the buckshot will spread out so you just have to generally point it in the general direction of the person and pull the trigger and that's not true it is it's true at 30 yards but if it's a home defense gun most rooms are not longer wider than seven yards if you get a home shotgun and you put buckshot in it and shoot it at a piece of cardboard at seven yards that group's not going to be bigger than two inches wide it's, it's very narrow. So you actually have to aim it inside of a house, just like a rifle, just like a handgun. So while a shotgun hit is devastating, it is cumbersome, it's more complicated, it's lower rounds, the recoil. And with a handgun, with a home defensive handgun, service-style handgun, you can have 15 to 18 rounds. You can, use, you can manipulate it, use it, shoot it one-handed, which means the other hand's free to open door knobs, pull doors open, hold kids back, talk on the cell phone with the police do other things with the other hand so just be wary when they say shotgun's the best home defense weapon if you have one and you know how to use it they can be devastating but they're not necessarily the easiest for most people to use other things that we hear all the time um, when we're talking about the capacity say of a self-defense handgun whether it's a home gun or you're carrying it in public uh, you know, how many rounds? This one holds eight. This one holds 11. This one holds 15. And we usually get the guy that says, well, if you know what you're doing, you're only going to need one. So the capacity doesn't matter. Oh, really? Let's watch some videos. And because in our country over the last 20 years in public places, other than in a public restroom, pretty much it's hard to find a place you can go where you're not on a security camera somewhere. So because of that, we have thousands of videos of people shooting each other in, in criminal acts. And what you'll find is we can show you videos where one shot from a handgun stopped a violent criminal act, but we can show you videos where 10 or 14 hits from a handgun didn't stop the criminal act. So we don't know how many it's going to take, regardless of what caliber, regardless of where you hit. Someone that's shot into the heart with a handgun can still actually function for a little bit until they lose enough blood pressure uh, to pass out. So that thing, if you only need one, if you know what you're doing, uh, is not really true, not with a handgun. And then we'll get people when the, the, it's, a, it's a guilt thing. Well, I hope I don't have to use it. Well, of course you don't. Why do you, why do you even say that? We don't really feel the need to say that for anything else. When you're at the Ford dealership shopping for a new car, and he says, this new model here has 12 airbags in it. We don't say, well, I hope I never have to use those. That, we don't say that out loud. We, we feel it. We don't want to use our seatbelts or airbags. We don't need them. We don't say that if we buy a fire extinguisher for our kitchen. We don't, well, I hope I never have to use it. But with guns, I think there's a guilt about it with some people. Like they just feel guilty about having to have a gun. We, we don't say that about the life vest in the boat. Well, I hope I never have to use it. Well, of course you don't. It goes without saying, but for some reason we say it with a gun. And then right along with that is when we're training people or talking about the training, well, you know, I, I don't want to have to hurt anybody. Well, of course you don't. It should go without saying, but again, we have that guilt there. Uh, you don't want to hurt anybody right now because no one's trying to kill you right now. But if someone breaks into your home or is trying to kill you in the parking lot in order to take your vehicle and your cell phone and whatever else you have, you will want to hurt somebody at that point. So train now while you don't want to hurt anybody for that moment where you might 
be put in where you do desperately want to hurt somebody because they're trying to cripple or kill you in the parking lot or in your home. And then when we're a saying we have when we're talking about certain types of guns and the capacity and the features, and we'll, if it's a gun we like, we'll say, this is not a bad gun to start a fight with. And they'll look at us and say, whoa, 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 now I don't intend on starting any fight. And we say, well, you might better rethink that, especially if you carry a gun in public. Because the way it will probably happen is um, the person who attacks you, they will start the confrontation, but probably they will not start the fight. They will start interaction with you. They'll produce a weapon, and they'll, they'll give you a threat that they will use the weapon if they don't get what they want. They haven't really fought you yet. They've just started the interaction with a threat. So if there's going to be a fight at that point, it's probably because you will decide to start it and when to start it. So you got to get people's minds rights in. If they're carrying a gun, it's because they may decide, I am going to draw this thing out and turn this interaction, this threat, this potential fight into a fight and put it into my favor. And then there's, we'll meet people that uh, they got their, they've had their license for 20 years. Well, what are you carrying right now? Well, I'm not really carrying. I don't really carry. Uh, they'll either say, well, you know, sometimes I have it in the truck. Or, well, I, I, you know, I only carry it if I'm going to go to a bad place or I think I'm going to need it. Well, if there's a place you think you're going to need your gun, don't go there. You know, why would you even go to a place where you think you're going to need your gun? The reason we carry them all the time is the reason I carry that seatbelt all the time. And the seatbelt, I think, is just a great comparison, a great analogy. The seatbelt in a car is an inconvenient, uncomfortable thing. Why would we put up? And use intentionally something that's inconvenient and uncomfortable. Because if something goes against us, if the dice rolls against us, if the drunk driver or the texting teenager smacks into us unexpectedly, nothing can save our life like that uncomfortable, inconvenient thing. And that's exactly like the gun that you carry. It's not an ego thing. It's not a macho thing. It's really a pain in the rear. It's extra weight. It, it, it's just cumbersome. There's legal problems with it. But the reason we put up with all of that is because if we get attacked, it's just going to be us and them. No one else will be there to help us. And so we put up with the inconvenience and the uncomfortableness so that we can have the best tool possible to save our life when we get there. I'll only carry it if I think I'll need it. A lot of people go through the trouble, the money, the time to get their license, and then they don't carry. Now, that works out for most people because most people aren't going to get attacked. Just like I've not worn my seatbelt sometimes, and it's worked out for me because I didn't get in a car accident when I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. And then we have the people who they say, of course, I have a gun at home. Of course, I have a gun at home, but there's, I mean, I'm not going to carry one in public. So it just seems so obvious that they need one at home to defend themselves and their family if they have one. But it seems really weird, unrealistic to them, odd to carry it in public. But actually, statistically, you're much more likely to get attacked violently outside your home than inside your home. But again, counterintuitive, they think, well, I definitely need one in my home. But it would be kind of extreme to carry one outside the home. Inside your home, you have lots of advantages. You know the floor plan. The guy coming in probably doesn't. You may have more, probably have more control over the lights than he does. Hopefully, you've got at least your door and windows locked. So that's not going to keep him out, but it it'll give, should give you early warning 
that he is breaking and entering your home. You may have an alarm system. You may have a dog. And in Arkansas, you're more likely than not to have a gun in your home. So you have a stack of advantages uh, in your favor inside your home. Why would I want to come up against all of that? Now, are there home invasions? Are there break-ins? Yes. But that puts the person that's doing that at a huge, huge disadvantage. In the parking lot, we're equal. And, in fact, I'm going to have the advantage because I'm going to pick you. I'm going to pick the the time, the place, the date, how I attack, how many people I have, what weapon I have. I get to do all that choosing. And you will be behind the power curve because I will have already started the interaction by the time you realize what's going on. So it's, again, counterintuitive. People say, I don't carry one outside the home, but, of course, I've got one in the home. You're more likely to get attacked outside the home. And the parking lot is the statistical place. The lion in the Serengeti uh, doesn't generally wander around looking for his next meal. He sits at the watering hole because every animal has to come to the watering hole. Well, we all need diapers and milk and other and food and gas. So they go to the, the parking lot of Walmart, of malls, of convenience stores, where everybody has to come to get the stuff that they need. And that's where they pick their victims. So parking lots are extremely dangerous. Uh, rules of a gunfight. Let's talk about rules of a gunfight. You can Google this online. You can find all kinds of lists of rules of a gunfight, 10 rules, 15 rules, 3 rules. Uh, what I'll talk to you about here has six rules. Six rules of a gunfight. Now, all of these are kind of humorous, but they, they are also serious in a way. So rule number one of a gunfight, the, the ones I'm going to say here, rule number one is don't get shot. That is rule number one. Okay, That's kind of humorous. Okay, Don't get shot. But what does that really mean? Well, it means... The saying is, the only gunfight I can guarantee you won't lose is the one you don't get into. So at all cost, avoid getting into a situation where you have to pull the gun. Because if you have to pull the gun, there's a lot of variables you don't control. If you have no other choice, then you've got to deal with it. But try not to go places where it's more likely. If you see things starting to go possibly bad, then leave. Okay, Be aware so that you can see things coming. You can see things progressing. You can predict what might happen and if you absolutely cannot avoid the fight one of the greatest advantages you can have is to have two three or four seconds of advance notice that it's coming because you can mentally prepare run through your options choose your least worst option and position yourself to have greater advantage so rule number one is don't get shot rule number two have a gun if you're going to be in a gunfight, you probably want to have a gun and then in parentheses there is have a loaded gun Okay, have a gun. Don't bring a knife or something else to a gunfight if there's going to be a gunfight that you cannot avoid. Rule number three, you can't miss fast enough to win. Right. So a, a gunfight is a balance of accuracy and speed. Both matter. Uh, and which one matters more depends on how close you are. But you just can't do what we call do a mag dump. Just shoot ammo in that general direction. You have to hit. Why? Because misses won't hurt him, hits will, but more importantly, solid hits into the center of the body with hollow point handgun rounds have a very real chance of staying in that person's body, which means they won't keep traveling and hit something else. Those of us who train are used to training on an artificial sterile range where whether we hit or miss our intended target, our bullets are safely trapped in a wall of dirt or some other kind of bullet trap if it's an indoor range. 
And in the Walmart parking lot, there is no nothing there to trap your bullet if your bullet doesn't stay in the person that you're shooting. Inside your home, if you have other people in your home, or if you live in an apartment or a condo and share a wall or two or three with other families and other people, then misses not only don't stop the person who's trying to kill you, but they have a devastating effect on other people. The saying is, in a gunfight, there are no misses. There are only unintended hits. So you can't miss fast enough to win. And if you're under this kind of stress, remember, the gun's not coming out unless you think there's an immediate threat to your life. That's pretty severe stress. Under that kind of stress, your brain is screaming, go faster, go faster, go faster, because time's important. And part of training is calming yourself down and staying in control of your emotions and going fast, but not so fast that you don't control your your physical skills. We call that outrunning your headlights. Rule number four is anything worth shooting once is worth shooting twice. So again, if you have to shoot another human who's trying to kill you, I can't tell you how many hits it's going to take from your handgun to stop that person's violent actions against you. It might be one, 14 might not be enough. So if they force you by their actions to shoot them to stay alive, then be ready to shoot them a lot. Ammo is inexpensive. Uh, Your life is extremely expensive. Okay. Um, two more. Number five is owning a piano does not make you a musician, just like owning a gun does not make you armed. So if I inherited my great-grandmother's grand piano, it would look beautiful in my living room, but I don't know how to play it. So all I could do is look at it. People, You can carry a gun. You can own a gun. You can have it in your home, but the gun's not a force field that will keep bad things from happening keep you from getting attacked and the gun will do nothing by itself it's not a player piano it won't play itself the gun won't play itself so you have to know how to play your gun and a lot of men get caught up in their ego and make some assumptions that aren't true like well i'm a man so i know how to use a gun no it's a mechanical tool if you don't know how to use another kind of mechanical tool just being a man doesn't mean you know you don't pop out of the womb knowing how to shoot a gun or fight with a gun well or serving in the military Right? I've 24 years active duty in the military. Just because you served in the military doesn't mean you know how to fight with a handgun. And we get this all the time. Well, I'm a veteran, so I don't really need no training. Well, what's a veteran? You've served in the military. We had a guy that served two years in the Naval Reserve in Nebraska back in the 70s. Well, I'm a veteran, so I don't really need any training. So you carried a concealed handgun in public? No, no. You shot a rifle once or twice, so that it doesn't align. And then even being a cop. Being in law enforcement, people assume you've got you, you know what you're doing, and unfortunately, that's not true. Um, so we'll go on break, and we'll talk about number six when we get back. All right, so we left off with the six rules of a gunfight. We got to five. Number six is kind of a question. It, the question is, how much time do you have to stop a deadly threat? Well, the answer is the rest of your life. So, again, a little humorous play there, but it's true. Most of us, most people that have gone out and shot, time was not a factor. In fact, they probably took a lot of time trying to get 
the absolute best hits. And that's, again, the gunfight is a balance of accuracy and speed. And especially if we're talking about the parking lot uh, attack, it's probably going to be very, very close. And the, the only reason you would draw the gun out is because you had a reasonable fear of death or serious bodily harm very close to you. So time is a factor. You have the rest of your life. So speed is important of getting the gun. Once you make the decision, getting the gun out and getting all hits very quickly. That's important. So how do we train for this kind of stuff? The goals of training. So we have five goals of training. And the first one is what most people overlook. And that's mindset, mental preparedness. Most people go straight to the hardware and they bypass the software. Most people, when they get into this, want to talk about guns and bullets and ammo and holsters and all of the hardware. And they forget the mindset or the cool hand Luke Warden. You got to get your mind right. Uh, And that's what we cover heavy on. And that's the mindset. And then the four physical things are we want you to be safe, fast, reliable, and accurate. Safe. That means you carry safely. You handle the gun at all times safely at home, putting the gun in the holster, taking it out, uh, unloading it, uh, loading it. Anything you do with the gun at all times, you're safe with it. Include not just shooting it, but all other handling of the gun and the carrying of the gun. And you're fast. How fast? As fast as you can get uh, using the best gear available in whatever time you're going to devote to training. Remember, uh, it's not just for competition purposes. You're going to start at a deficit. The person's going to initiate the contact with you in the parking lot. You're going to be at a disadvantage. Your gun's going to be concealed. His weapon, whatever it is, is probably out. The threat's been made. So if you decide to fight, you're going to start from a disadvantage. So you're going to have to be pretty quick getting the gun out and put it to work. Reliable. That means your gear's reliable, but you're reliable. So you're consistent with your movements, with getting the gun out and hitting. You're very reliable with that. And then accurate, and here we get into if you're carrying a gun for the parking lot experience, it's acceptable accuracy very fast. You're not trying to hit a certain button on their shirt. You're trying to get your bullets into the the center of their chest, a big area in the center of their chest, as rapidly as you can, as most as you can. So safe, fast, reliable, and accurate. Is are the training goals and a good mindset that understands the fight, understands the criminal, understands the legal ramifications. Training priorities at home, you got to know the law. You got to get 100% hits uh, at whatever distance your home allows, uh, depending on how far of a shot. In my house, the longest shot I could get inside my house is 12 yards. If your defensive gun is a semi-automatic, you got to know how to clear malfunctions because that happens in semi-automatic handguns, and we find it happens more often in dynamic, realistic training and fighting than it does standing in a perfect stance, perfect grip, target practicing. Knowing how to building search, move through a building, and know how to use a light inside your home. Those things are important. Outside the home, again, you have to know the law, be comfortable with using deadly force, Your draw out of the concealed holster presentation of the gun and hits has to be perfect. You have to do that so much that you can do it automatically, even under severe stress. Again, you got to know how to clear malfunctions if you have a semi-automatic. You have to know how to do after-action drills once the fight is over or you think it's over. You have to get really good in your mind with the 911 call, which has to be made, and what that's going to sound like and what you're going to say and what you're not going to say. And then how to interact with law enforcement when they show up. That needs to be thought through and some uh, parameters made in your mind before that ever happens. 
In the second hour, we're going to talk about active shooter response, active shooter policy, active shooter plans. If you know somebody in school, administration, uh, church leadership or security, or anybody else you know that might be interested in this, I think I cover it a little differently than most people. Uh, That's what I've been told when I go and talk to groups. So if you know anybody that might be interested in talking about this like adults, uh, that's what I hope to do in the next hour. So, again, thanks for Dave for having me in here. Thanks to Heidi for keeping me up on my training wheels, and we'll see you in the next hour. Good Monday morning, and again, this is not Dave Ellswick, unfortunately. It's Ed Monk, uh, guest hosting for Dave today and today only, so get it while it's hot. In the first hour introduction, and we talked a little about defensive gun use, handgun use specifically. In the second hour, what I'd like to talk about is the active shooter, something I've specialized in and studied for like the last 15 years, and what I find is that it's kind of like the weather. We talk a lot about it, but we don't do anything to affect it or change it. Or make it better. Because with the weather, we can't. But with the active shooter, we could. Why did I get into this 15 years ago? Well, it was, it was, it was personal. Uh, in my last few years in the Army, and then in my, when I started teaching high school, immediately after retiring from the Army, my leadership in both were telling me uh, what to do in case of an active shooter. And in both cases, the leadership in the Army and the school system, the school district, what they were telling me made no sense. What they were telling me seemed to not, it wouldn't, it, not only would it not help me and those around me if an active shooter attacked, but it would actually make it worse for us. We would actually be helping the active shooter. At least that's the way it seemed to me. But I was new. I didn't really know a lot about it. It just, in my gut, my military training, common sense, everything about it told me this is wrong. They, what they were telling me to do was to be an accomplice to my own murder. And it just did not. So that's, I started looking into it. Maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe 
they know more than I do. So I, I, that's why I started studying this thing. So as I told you, a little over 20 years, I was a military officer in combat arms, meaning those branches of the, gov- of the army that do the fighting, infantry, armor, cavalry, that kind of thing. Here's what we pay and expect combat arms officers in the army to do. To look at a threat or a potential threat and to study it and to define it. What are its tactics, techniques, and procedures? What are its weapons systems? What are its capabilities? What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? What are its most likely courses of action? And then once we think we understand the threat, then we define the environment in which we expect to find and fight this threat. And then once we've defined that, given that, what is we come up with the best possible plan that defeats that threat as quickly as possible in the smallest amount of time and with the fewest casualties? And then we build a training plan to train our fighters how to execute that operational plan to defeat that threat that we've defined as quickly as we can with the fewest amount of casualties. And that seems what we ought to apply to the active shooter, but we're not doing. So I've studied this for about the last 15 years. I've actually provided training on the active shooter threat for about the last 12 years. The most common thing I do with it is I give presentations to educate people on the active shooter, the attack, the attacker, what's most likely to happen in different situations because the attack starts differently depending on whether you're at a high school or an elementary school or a church or a business. So what's most likely to happen in any given location, the three options for organizations such as churches, schools, colleges, businesses. And then the three options for individuals, wherever you might be when one of these things kicks off. And then how to best prepare and train for this if it happens. I speak to public groups, just op- you know, open to the public. Anybody can come. Things like Rotary Clubs and other public civic organizations. Talk to a lot of schools, some colleges, a lot of churches, some businesses. I just did a hospital in Little Rock a couple of months ago. And a lot to law enforcement agencies. So with them, I've actually developed a specific one called Critical Lessons Learned for Law Enforcement on Active Shooter Attacks, where I look specifically at law enforcement lessons learned. And then I also have a presentation on range training. What I have developed, what I have found to be the best way to train people, armed people, to how to respond to active shooters, the range training methodology I use. And that's the two that I usually give when I'm talking to a law enforcement audience. And I will cater my presentation to the audience that I'm talking to. So if I'm talking to a school, I will, t- I will show more school attacks and talk more specifically about how they differ. If I'm talking to a church, I'll more church attacks and talk about how the active shooters are different there. I also do consulting. I go in with schools and other uh, businesses, and I have basically a three-step plan. Uh, the first is the presentation on the threat and the options and how to execute them. And then the next two steps, I can either stay with them and do, or I can tell them how to do it, and they can do it after I leave. Uh, the second step is a tabletop where we lay a uh, floor plan of the building on a table, or more modern times, if it's a big audience, we project it up on a screen. And we look at each location, starting with the most likely place. If an attack happens here, and then for all of you, no matter where you are in the building, what do you do if an attack starts here? Now, what do you do if an attack starts here? Then one of the main purposes there is to get them to understand 
everybody in the building should not do the same thing, which is what a lot of plans are, uh, the lockdown drill in the school. And that's crazy. The person close to the active shooter probably should do something different than the person farthest away from the active shooter. So that tabletop exercise with the floor plan gets them to understand I have three options. And depending on where I am in relation to the active shooter and my abilities in the building will determine what's best for me at any given time. Then we do a walkthrough where we walk through the building and everybody walks together. So we'll go into different areas and whoever person, like say a school, you know, Mr. Smith in this classroom, after the previous two, we'll say, okay, let's say you're in your classroom and because of whatever's happening, you determine that the three options, by the way, are fight, flee, and barricade. Not run, hide, fight. Fight, flee, and barricade. You determine fight is best for you at this time. Show me your fighting options that you have in here, that you've designed, that you have ready. Show me the, the weapons. I'm not talking about guns here. I'm talking about the weapons, the makes, makeshift weapons in this classroom. Who's going to participate? You know, are you teaching fifth graders or, or 11th graders? Who's going to help you in this? What's your plan? What are your weapons? What are your options? Okay, now let's transition to flee. You decide flee is your best option in this situation. Show me all of your fleeing options. Well, the easiest is out the out the classroom door to the left. The exit's right there, and I'm out. Well, if that's the direction of the attack, then we go this way. Now, do you have a window? Is it? Can you open it to the point that it can be people can get out? If not, is it breakable? Show me your tool to break it if that happens. So go through all of your fleeing options, and then your barricade options. Show me what how you plan to barricade this room. If you decide that barricade is the option, and what are the people in this room going to do? while you barricade so that's kind of the three and then i help them develop their policies their plans and their training what have i seen in 15 years of studying this um well what i've seen is is 30 years in our country 30 years of pretty much absolute failure not complete failure but pretty much 30 years of failure again it's like the weather we talk about it all the time but we don't do anything to change it and of course we can't do that with the weather but we could do that here What we have is a lot of talk, a lot of politics, a lot of emotion, a lot of media coverage, but no improvement. Okay, what do I mean by failure? Well, just some examples. We we knew this problem existed before 1989, but in 1989, we had a school shooting at Stockton, California, where a guy with a rifle went to an elementary school in Stockton, California, where kids and a few teachers were on the playground, and he shot people on the playground. And after he had shot 35 He just decided to quit, pulled out a pistol and shot himself in the head. The cops had been called. The cops were on their way, but they weren't on the property and closing in on him yet. So it ended at 35 only because he decided to quit. And that happens quite a bit, thank goodness, in a lot of active shooter attacks. They just decide to quit. So we knew it before 89, but that was just another glaring example that we have a problem Hopefully we don't want 30 people shot in these kind of attacks. So what are we going to do differently so that when the next one happens, we don't have this horrible result? That would have been the adult thing to do is what lessons can we learn? What changes can we make uh, to give us a lower victim count in the next one? But we didn't. So 10 years later, we have Columbine in 1999. And most of us still remember that one. Two students went inside of their school and shot 34 people. They shot a few outside before they went inside. Shot 34, and then they just decided to quit and shoot themselves. Thank goodness, because we left them alone, unopposed, inside of a huge school with over 2,000 people in it for over 40 minutes. The body count could have very easily been in the hundreds, 
But because they weren't very aggressive and they clocked themselves out pretty quickly, it on, we only had 34 people shot. But it, that could have been a, a horrible massacre. Well, surely now we'll fix this. We, maybe not fix it, but we're going to make some improvements. We're not going to we'll just let people shoot unopposed for that long and give us this high of a victim count. Well, what did we have 19 years later? In 2018, we had Parkland, which most of us still remember, where a recently expelled student goes back into his school and shoots 34 people, the same as Columbine, one less than Stockton. He shoots 34 people before he just decides to quit. Had plenty of ammo left, still had a working gun, just decided to quit, dropped his gear, walked out of the building. No cop entered that building until five minutes after the shooter had left. So he, he only got 34. He could have very easily gotten a 50, 60 if he'd have kept shooting for those five minutes. The cops thought he was in the building when they went in. Turns out he wasn't. So 19 years, we didn't fix it. And then what did we just have in Uvalde? We had a guy go in an elementary school and shoot 30. We look, it looks like 38 people before the cops finally killed him. 38. So we keep getting these results of 20, 30, 40 people in these attacks. 70 in a theater in Aurora, Colorado, 102 in Pulse Nightclub in Orlando. We keep getting these huge body counts, and we say we're upset with it. We say it's unacceptable, but then we don't do anything to change, so they're acceptable. Businesses, San Ysidro, California, 1984, in a McDonald's, a guy went in there, and we let him shoot for 80 minutes before a police sniper took him out. Colleen, Texas, Luby's Cafeteria outside Fort Hood. A guy drove his car through the window into that restaurant and shot 43 and finally clocked himself out. I moved to Colleen just a few months after that happened when I got assigned to Fort Hood. Orlando, Pulse Nightclub in Florida, 2016. A guy went in there. We left him in there for over three hours. Now, luckily, his gun malfunctioned at 17 minutes, and, he, and so he only shot for 17 minutes of the three hours we left him in there. So we really lucked out there, but he got 102 people. How many would it have been had his gun not malfunctioned? And then El Paso, Walmart in 2019, 46. A guy went into a Walmart with a rifle, shot 46 people until he just decided to quit, walked out to his car, sat in his car, and as the cops started showing up, eventually got out and walked up to a cop and gave himself up. But that could have been in the 50s, 60s, had he just kept shooting in the Walmart. But he didn't. Military bases. Fairchild Air Force Base, 1994, 26 people. Fort Bragg, North Carolina, 1995, 21 people. Fort Hood, the first of two active shooter attacks on Fort Hood, Texas, 2009, 43 people shot. So, yeah, failure. We keep having 20, 30, 40 or more people shot in this, and we're not fixing it. Why? Well, the cycle of failure that what I see occurs is... Normally, we're asleep, and we're going to be that way here and again in a month or two if we don't have any more attacks. Uh, here recently, we weren't asleep because Yavaldi woke us up. But generally, we're asleep. We haven't had an attack in a while. We don't really care. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to change our policies. Why should we? Because they're working fine because we don't have an attack. Then we have an attack like Yavaldi. Well, that wakes us up. And then we get all excited, and our hair catches on fire, and we're shocked that this could happen again. And we're outraged that we could have this many people shot and we're emotional and there's people crying and the media is covering it and we're having memorial ceremonies and politicians are using the emotions to push their agendas we're blaming people and things and organizations we're pointing fingers the media is going crazy we appoint the governor appoints task forces and commissions to study this problem and they produce some kind of results some kind of study we buy products and adopt policy changes 
that don't help, but it makes us feel like we did something. So we buy some stuff, we change some policies, and having done some things, now we feel better. That, by God, we did something this time, and we pat ourselves in the back, and we push the snooze button, and we go back to sleep until the next attack. So that's the cycle we do, but it doesn't help. We talk about the weather, but we don't change it. And we'll continue with this active shooter problem and how to make it better after the break. Absolute failure over the last 30 years of our country responding to active shooters. Uh, Puzzling as to why we won't do anything different, Uh, but it's obviously there. A last example, back in uh, June of 21, I was asked to come be one of the speakers, one of the many, many speakers at the National School Safety Conference. Last year it was in New Orleans. This year it's in Orlando, I believe. So it's a week-long conference, and it's not just active shooter. It's on school safety and security, but a big part of it is active shooter. And so there's a week-long conference, and there's all kinds of choices of breakout sessions and classes and lectures and panel discussions that you can choose to go to on different topics. And there's hundreds of vendors there, companies that set up booths to try to sell stuff for school security to schools while they're there. And here, this really brought it home for me, about half the the classes that you could go to that were active shooter-related, about half of them dealt with what do you what do we do before the attack before the first shot of the attack how to predict it how to intervene how to do a threat assessment a risk assessment for the school a safety assessment for the school access to mental health get kids to say something if they see something lockdown drills all those type of things were about half the classes you could go to and about half the products that the vendors were trying to sell to schools dealt with before the attack The other classes you could go to, the other half, and the other half of the vendor items there were what do we do after the attack? Accountability, evacuation, building clearing, rescue task force. Nobody there, except me, nobody there was talking about or selling products for how do we stop the attack in the first 30 seconds. Everything was about before and after the attack. Nobody was talking about how do we stop it quickly once it starts. Now, cops were talking about once we get there, how do we stop it quickly? But that's five minutes, eight minutes down the road. That's what gives us 30 and 40 people shot. No one's talking about what we ought to all be talking about, which is how do we stop this thing in the first 30 seconds after it starts? Because stopping it in the first 30 seconds is the only thing that gives us a reasonable good chance of having low victim count. That is it. That is the only option is stopping it in the first 30 seconds, but no one's talking about it. If you call 911, if if you, the plan to stop the active shooter in your location requires a 911 call, you're guaranteed to have double-digit victims, meaning 10 or more. Why? Because the way it times out is by the time the first 911 operator understands the first phone call about this attack that's just started, you will we will already be past ten victims by the time that t- by the time that takes place because there's a one to four minute delay between the first shot and the first nine one one call in an active shooter attack. So if your school, if your church, if your business, if if the plan for that organization to stop an active shooter at your location requires a nine one one call, you're guaranteed double digit victims. 
That is huge. Now, how many will it be? Will it be 12, 27, 96? I can't tell you. There's too many variables. But I can tell you you'll be past 10. So if you don't want double-digit victims, then the 911 call cannot be what stops the shooter. Now, we need to call 911 because we want cops and ambulances heading this way. But we want to stop it before they get here because that's the only way to get low numbers. So what I'll tell people is show me an active shooter attack that was stopped because of a 911 call, the result of a 911 call, and ended in single-digit victims, zero to nine. Show me one. And if it's not impossible, it's really, really hard because math, you can't beat math. And that's what gets this. So how can we stop it in the first 30 seconds? You can do it with a gun or without a gun. It used to say armed or unarmed, but, I mean, you can arm yourself with a coffee pot, a fire extinguisher, a flagpole, anything around you, an improvised weapon. But you can do it with a gun, and you can do it without a gun. Um, it's your choice. But I can tell you what's more efficient. I can tell you what works the best. I can tell you what a cop is going to bring in there. He's not going to leave his gun in the car if he's responding to an active shooter attack because we know what tool works best. When I talk to schools and churches, they almost always have really nice grass lawns, and I tell them, you've got to cut that grass, and there's all different ways to cut it, right? You could cut it with scissors. I've seen that done. You can cut your grass with scissors and get it done. You can cut it with the old rotary mechanical, the oldie type push mower. You can cut it with a gas-powered mower, push mower, or you can cut it with a zero-turn driving lawnmower. All, all those ways will cut the grass, but there, some tools are better than others to get it done more quickly than others. And so we need to decide how we're going to stop it. Whether we use a gun or not, we got to stop it. We have to act aggressively to stop it if we want single-digit victims. And I've never met anybody that said they would rather have 20 than 8 when it comes to victims as a result of this. And so people will say, you know, Ed, if you, if you ask him to come talk to you, he's just going to push guns. He's a gun guy. He's going to push guns. Well, not really. What I'm pushing is single-digit victim count. The goal I suggest and do push to organizations, churches, schools, and businesses, is to have a goal of their plan to get single-digit victims if an attack happens there. Uh, can't get, I can, there's nothing you can do that can guarantee that, but there's things you can do that get you up in the 90-plus percent chance of having that. So I want single-digit victims as an outcome of your plan. Not that you hope for it or you want it, but that you have a plan that's got an expectation to get it. The only way to get that is to do an immediate counterattack by the people there, the intended victims there. Not people that are coming, but people that are there. And the best way I know to do that is with a gun. It's not the only way. But it's the best way. And it really comes down to this. Nobody wants a gun in the building on all the days the active shooter is not there. But everybody wants a gun there on the, when the active shooter shows up. And you can't have both. You can't have both. So you have to make your plan based on what you want when the active shooter shows up. Because once he shows up, you can't go back and change it. We have to be adults about this and plan for reality.
And this is Ed Monk again, guest hosting for Dave as he takes a great vacation, a well-deserved vacation. And we're talking about something I talk about a lot, which is the active shooter threat. If you want, if you have a business or a school or you're in law enforcement or church security and you want to talk more about this uh, after the show at any time, you can contact me. My email is my name, Ed Monk, E-D-M-O-N-K at AOL.com. And my number is 870-273-1113. And that is my cell. You can text me. So we talked about just the simple, ugly math, which is that the only way to have a single-digit victim count if the active shooter shows up to your place and starts an attack is for the intended victims, the people who are already there, to immediately respond with an aggressive, ruthless, vicious, violent counterattack and to stop the shooter within the first 30 seconds. That doesn't guarantee a single-digit victim count, but the odds are it gives you a great expectation of that. You have to fight back. You can fight back with a gun. You can fight back without a gun. And I can give examples of both. Uh, So when I do this, when I talk about fighting in general, or my God, fighting with a gun, it causes emotional and political knee-jerk responses from a lot of audiences and a lot of organizations. When I was speaking to a school district up in the, outside of Cincinnati, uh, the superintendent, as soon as I said this, you, you, people here, we, students, staff, we have to fight back immediately. Um, superintendent stopped my presentation, stopped it, said, that's it, we're done. We will never advocate violence here at this school district to solve any kind of problem. Okay, yeah, you will. I didn't tell her that, but yeah, you will. Because you, if this happens, you will be screaming into the phone for somebody else that's five or ten minutes away to please get here as quick as you can and do violence on this person that's killing us. So you will advocate violence. You will just advocate it to someone who's five minutes away instead of to people who can do it quickly and keep your numbers low. If you got school leaders in Houston, or let's just say Tampa, together to talk about how can we protect our schools or, or staff our students against hurricanes. They would sit down and have a logical, rational, reasonable discussion. They might disagree, but they would talk rationally about how to best do that. Um, in Arkansas, if we got school leaders together to talk about how to protect our schools, our people against tornadoes, we would have a rational, calm discussion. But as soon as you throw a gun on the table and, and guns are involved, people with high degrees completely lose their ability to talk about it rationally using data and and math and logic and they get emotional i don't know why that is Uh, einstein said for be wary of negative people because they'll have a problem for every solution and that's what i've found when i propose what math clearly shows they'll say no absolutely not okay then what's your solution well i know we're not doing what you're proposing Okay, well, what's your solution that gives a good chance of a single-digit victim count? Well, we're not doing what you're, do- what you're proposing. All they know is what they don't want. They don't have a plan. Um, they, do- they don't want what I want, which is to, uh, the plan to be immediate violence against the active shooter. Another problem I see is they'll want to focus on the plan, on their plan, but not the goal of the plan. And this just seems crazy to me. This brings back Alice in Wonderland, where she's little girl is walking along a path in the forest, and she comes to a point where the path forks and goes in two directions. And she has to make a choice, which, which direction, which path do I take? And there's a cat there. And she asks the cat, well, which, which path should I take now that there's two options? And the cat says, well, where is it you're trying to get to? And she says, I really don't know. And he says, well, then either path will work, won't it? 
If you don't know where you're trying to get to, any road will take you there. And that's what I see. They get focused on the plan, and they don't connect it to what they want. So, again, what I push, and again, I've never met any organizational leader who said, I want a lot of victims, so they all want fewer victims, which is what I want. But they they will just get focused on the plan and disconnect it from the goal. They'll put in the plan things that they personally like or they personally are comfortable with, even if that does not help them get a low victim count because they're comfortable with it. They'll do what, well, that's what other organizations, that's what other schools are doing, that's what these other churches are doing, but does it give you a reasonable expectation of a low victim count? They haven't, for some reason, they haven't gone through that process. But if other people like us, if other organizations like us are doing the same thing, then that must be the right thing to do. And it's what we've always done. I can vivid remember a principal saying, Ed, I hear what you're saying, but we've had this, this our plan, the lockdown drill, for over 20 years, and it, it's, it hasn't caused a problem. It's worked perfectly for us. Well, and that's because the active shooter hadn't showed up yet. That's like saying I, I never wear my seatbelt, and it's, it's never caused me a problem, but that's because the drunk driver hadn't hit you yet. They want things that aren't controversial. They say, well, that's, this is what the government website told us to do. Okay, but wargame it through. Will doing what that government website told you to do, will that help you, give you a good chance of getting single-digit victims? And the answer is probably no. But that's how they build their plan, focusing on the plan and not on the goal. Okay, we, What I wanted you to do is do what gives you a very high expectation, a probability of getting a low victim count. And that's what people won't do. So... What questions that you can ask if we're talking about schools, ask the school leadership who is ultimately responsible for the safety of the employees and the students here in this school. If they tell you anything other than I am, the superintendent, the principal, the school board, if they tell you anything other than I'm responsible, you got a problem and we need to change the leadership. Um, at that school safety conference I spoke at down in New Orleans in 21, I vividly remember on a panel discussion, the superintendent cannot remember what state he was from, but he said, listen, it's not our job to stop the active shooter. That's why we have law enforcement. And that's the exact attitude, which is why we get 20, 30, and 40 people shot. The, if the people there don't take responsibility and say, we are going to stop it, you're going to have a high victim count. Ask them, how soon do you expect to stop the active shooter once it starts? If they don't give you a number... And it's not a minute or less, preferably 30 seconds or less. But if it's not, with at least within the first minute, or they just give you something nebulous as well, you know, we hope as soon as possible. That's not leadership. That's hoping. We need to get better leadership in there. Does your plan, does this school's plan to stop the active shooter require a 911 call? If the answer is yes, you need to change your leadership. Because if we're going to wait on the call and what the call produces to stop him, we're going to have a high victim count. Not because it's what I want, it's because what math gives us. Well, we have a resource officer. We have a cop on yeah, somewhere on campus, somewhere in the building. But what are the odds the shooter is going to start his attack right in front of the cop, the school resource officer who's there? What are those odds? Parkland had a resource officer, had been a cop for over 30 years And by the time he got to the building where the shooting was happening, 24 people had already been shot. Now, he didn't go in. He's labeled as a coward. Probably true. But it's not. Had he not been a coward, no one would have died or no one would have got shot. Had that been the bravest cop in the world who rushed in and acted aggressively, we'd have still had 24 people shot because the attack didn't start right in front of him. He had to hear about it and then get move over to the building where that took place. So a lot of times they think, if I've got a cop here, uh, that we're okay. We're immune from danger, and and it'll stop immediately. 
Pulse nightclub had an off-duty uniform cop there. They had 102 people shot. How do you plan to stop an attack at your school, in the cafeteria? If it's a high school, that's the most likely place it's going to start. Ask your principal, your superintendent, if an attack starts in our high school cafeteria before school or during lunch, what is the plan to stop it? And they will probably, in my experience, just blink at you. They don't have a plan because it's too hard. And so they just hope that it doesn't happen. And it probably won't, but it will to somebody. What about on the playground for elementary? If for elementary, that's it, they're, they're going to either shoot their way into the school or they're going to shoot your kids on the playground. What's your plan to protect the kids when they're on the playground? What's your plan? And what a lot of them will do is they'll hide behind, well, you know, we can't talk about that publicly because the shooter, we don't want them to know what our plan is. They'll hide behind that. But they behind closed doors with concerned parents, they ought to be able to tell you what their plan is. A parent has not been an active shooter at a school yet. What about in the hallways? What about in the classrooms? Well, we have a lockdown drill. So the lockdown drill is an example of trying to hammer a round peg into a square hole. So when I was little and we still had the Cold War and the bomb and all that kind of stuff, we would get under the desk. The bomb drill was to get the the nuclear bomb drill was to get under the desk. So that, that may have had some protection. I don't know. But that was the drill for that threat. But then we shouldn't use that drill for another threat. What did the teacher, the school employee at Columbine in the library where most of the kids were shot, what did she tell the kids to do and keep screaming at them to do? And we heard this on the 911 line to get under the tables, to stay under the tables. For some reason, that was in her head of something to do in an emergency. So that's what she reverted to. So when the shooters shot their way through the glass door and entered the media center in Columbine, what did they have? People huddled under the tables. What? What a great, unbelievable target. What an easy way for a shooter to take out people than all huddled up under their desk. That was 1999. What did the teacher in room 111 of Uvalde, the shooting we just had a couple of months ago, what did that teacher tell his kids to do? Get under the desk. Why are we still doing that? We should have never been doing it in the first place. And we say we learned our lessons from Columbine, but the memo didn't get to everybody. The same thing with the lockdown drill. Does a lockdown drill have value? It could. If uh, little Eddie Monk, we think he has, we got a tip. Somebody tattled and said, little Eddie Monk, we think he's got a gun in his backpack in his law in his locker. We think he's got drugs in his locker. Okay, do a, do a lockdown. Keep everybody where they are. Nobody goes to the bathroom. Nobody changes classes until we get the cops, the dog, whatever in here, and we resolve it. There's a there's a purpose to do a lockdown. Um, there's a convenience store near the school. There's a robbery. The robber gets away on foot. He may still be in the area. We do a lockdown. Um, and guard the entrances so whatever whatever the problem is outside the school building doesn't get inside the school building. But for an active shooter, the lockdown is an illusion. The lockdown won't work in the cafeteria. The lockdown will not work in the playground. What about the classrooms? Well, what Parkland showed us is if the doors aren't bulletproof and the walls aren't bulletproof, then being behind a locked door in a classroom, he shot 24 people on the first floor, 18 of those people. He shot through the door. They were in their classroom behind a locked door. He was in the hallway. He shot through the door and shot 18 people inside their lockdown room. If the walls aren't bulletproof and the doors aren't bulletproof, then a lockdown drill does not protect our kids and our teachers. It's an illusion of security. We'll talk more about this after the next break.
back talking about the active shooter and the very poor decision most schools make to have a lockdown drill as their plan. And this is, again, getting back to what I began with of when I became a school teacher. I was a 42-year-old retired lieutenant colonel from the Army, but I was a brand-new snot-nosed rookie teacher. So my job was to shut up and listen and do what I was told. And I got told, Mr. Monk, if we have an active shooter and you hear it or we come over the intercom and say active shooter, your job as the staff member, as the adult, as the authority to figure, is to gather all your kids in your classroom and put them in the corner of the room and pack them in there nice and tight in the corner of the room where they can't be seen from the door. And I remember hearing that and thinking that is the absolute best thing I could possibly do to make the shooter's job as easy as possible. Why would I do that? So when I suggested, well, I got a window, first floor classroom, why can't I let my kids get out the window and run to the post office, which we could see from my window? They said, Mr. Monk, we can't let the kids run away like that. It would take hours to get accountability of them. So administrative accountability was the priority, not the lives of the kids. Yeah, it's easy to account for them when they're dead on the floor of my classroom. But that was the thinking uh, of the leadership of the school. Good people. Not, they're good. They were great people, but they just weren't thinking about this realistically as adults. And then when I said, okay, if I have to stay in the room, which I wouldn't have done, but if I have to stay in the room, then let's fight. I have 11th graders. I have some football players in here. Let's, if you're going to make me stay in the room, when he comes through that door, instead of all being packed in the corner, the easiest target possible for him, like they were in Sandy Hook, um, let's fight. And they said, no, Mr. Monk, we cannot have fighting as our policy. Our insurance will go up. So, again, they were thinking administratively, monetarily, not saving kids' lives. So let's do this lockdown drill. It's really easy to type, and it's really easy to drill. They would announce once a month, lockdown drill, lockdown drill. Mr. I want to say his last name, the assistant principal in charge of security, would walk around with a clipboard, look inside all the classrooms, if everybody was doing what they were supposed to do, check the block, another successful drill, we'll report it to the state, success, success, active shooter training. When we were actually rehearsing to do the absolute worst possible thing we could do, the thing that would make the shooter's job as easy as possible. The first school I worked with, consulted with after the Uvalde shooting, the teacher, the principal, took me around the campus of this school and showed, very, very proud, by the way, said, look, we got emergency funding after Uvalde because of Uvalde, and look, we got these very expensive locks put on all the exterior doors of all the buildings. It takes this fob to get in. This is rated really, really high. You can't shoot this lock and make it open. It's a very good, sturdy lock. We paid a lot of money for them on all the exterior doors, and she showed them to me, and she was very proud. But all the exterior doors had a big glass pane on top and a big glass pane on bottom. And it wasn't ballistic glass. It was just regular glass. And I, I, I said, well, couldn't he just shoot through the glass and get in that way? And she just blinked at me like, well, that would be unfair. That, that would be breaking the rules. That's what the shooter did, by the way, in Sandy Hook, shot through the glass to get in the building. The Arapaho shooter approached the building with a shotgun intentionally with a slug in the chamber to defeat the lock on the door. So th- th- we have to war game our plans against a creative, evil thinking adaptive enemy uh, not someone that's going to walk up and go oh darn the door's locked and turn around and walk away because that's not what we're dealing with here we don't want a plan that's easy to type and easy to drill and something we do for some other situation we want a, a plan a response that is the best possible response has the best chance of giving us a low number and again the only way to get a low number is to stop it quickly What should schools do? Completely change their plan from passive, hunker down, and wait for it to stop to us, we, here. We are going to immediately stop it. Goal is within the first 30 seconds. 
typing the perfect plan into a book won't help. We have to train, resource, rehearse it, and wargame it. We have to teach people their three options of fight, flee, barricade, and then tell them you get to choose which one. Don't listen to the great intercom god. Don't wait for that to tell you what to do. You decide what to do based off where you are. Even school children get to decide because they may be in the office. They may be walking down the hall. They may be in the bathroom. Without supervision, they need to decide what the best thing to do is. If it's legal to have guns, have armed staff, and just don't have a couple, have enough What is enough? Well, it depends on how big your school building is. The goal is that no matter where it starts, where the shooter starts his attack, at least one, preferably two, at least one of your armed staff is close enough to hear it or see it so they can immediately act to stop it within the first 30 seconds. That's the goal. But I know most schools aren't going to go armed, either for legal issues or they just don't want to. I totally disagree with that. But if I understand that. So when I go talk to schools, I intentionally show them active shooter attacks where both students and adult staff and in one case a construction worker who happened to be on campus uh, unarmed without a gun attacked the active shooter and successfully stopped him thurston high school in oregon stem school in colorado noblesville middle school in indiana deer creek uh middle school and kelly elementary in california i this can work you can successfully attack unarmed it's not the best way i wouldn't want to have to do it but if we're disarmed we have to fight back regardless we can't cower in the corner or hide under the tables and wait for our turn to be shot all organizations including schools need to change their plan from passive to active to immediately violently ruthlessly viciously counterattacking and stopping the active shooter and i know that goes against the way some of us are socially brought up but we have to tell people this day is like no other so on other days we don't want you to be viciously violent to people in general but on this day we do on other days we don't want you breaking windows but on this day if it saves lives that's what we want it, adults, if you're in a restaurant and you see the door that says, don't go out this door, emergency exit only, alarm will sound. Well, don't go out that door on any other day. But if going out that door on this day saves your life, go. If you see a door that says employees only, don't enter. On on this day, if it saves your life, break these type of rules if it saves lives. We have to tell people to do this. We want the victims to stop the attack, not hunker down and do the best they can we got to transition this to the cops or the, the solution to this, to we're the solution to this. We want the cops to come because we're going to need a lot of cops. They're going to have to secure the crime scene, do the investigation, clear the whole building, handle traffic, handle a bunch of other things. But we don't want to rely on law enforcement to stop the active shooter because the numbers are too high. And we want a bunch of ambulances coming, but we want to already be treating casualties by the time the first ambulance before the first ambulance shows up and that's hard to get law enforcement to transition from we're the saviors we'll come help you to i want you to handle this before we get there we need to start thinking of this like adults treat it like combat think of what gives us the least amount of casualties not hope for no casualties there's nothing wrong with hope but we got to get beyond hope i hope a drunk driver doesn't slam into me but i still wear my seatbelt. so there's nothing wrong with hoping but we've got to get beyond hope and plan for if hope fails how can we limit the damage and casualties nine o'clock hour my brother mike monk will be here to talk about precision rifle for you people that are into that kind of wicked stuff uh so i get an hour break and i'll see y'all back here at about nine o'clock
the dave ellswick show but it's not dave ellswick on the mic he's on vacation i'm ed monk guest hosting for dave today thanks dave for the opportunity to do that in the last hour we talked about the active shooter problem if you want to talk to me more about that uh, please contact me off the show my email my facebook page or my phone number which i've given out uvalde the last big shooting we had why was it so bad because that school had the same failed plan as santa fe high school which also had a high victim count they had the same plan as parkland which had a high victim count they had the same plan as sandy hook columbine stockton the schools keep having the same plan which has proved to be a failure if you had a doctor that every time he treated a patient with leeches the patient died and he told you my plan is to treat you with leeches you would probably go find another doctor we need to find another plan it's counterintuitive. It makes no sense, but people have a knee-jerk reaction of they, they're okay with a cop having a gun at a church, at a school, at whatever location, but they're uncomfortable or downright politically opposed to just a citizen having a gun, which makes no sense because armed citizens have never shot the wrong person responding to an active shooter. Cops have done it several times. Cops have shot and killed each other by mistake twice responding to active shooters active shooters have a better record of stopping active shooter armed citizens have a better record of stopping active shooters more quickly than cops not because they're better than cops but because they're there when it starts and cops aren't what matters in responding to an active shooter is are you armed are you there and are you willing to act those three things give us a 90 percent success rate 18 out of 20 times when somebody had a gun was close enough to hear it or see it when it started and acted aggressively we have single digit victim counts 90 percent. we ought to look at that but now transitioning uh, Mike, my brother, Mike Monk is with us now. He built our wonderful facility, Last Resort Farms Training. He studies and trains people in the art and science of precision rifle shooting. I got no time for that nonsense. I don't even own a rifle with a scope on it, but he does. Uh, as I kind of specialize in active shooter topic, he specializes in that kind of stuff. He designed and teaches a one-day act or precision rifle class for people that want to gain more knowledge and skill and shooting their rifle uh, more precisely and more accurately he's promised me that he's got his hearing aid turned up he's on his meds and his probation officer has given him permission to be here on the show today so with that mike welcome and tell us a little about you and your background and the training that you had well thank you ed uh good morning uh i guess first of all i have no claims to fame that's a certainty um, in my professional life, I spent 28 years in public education. I retired from that. I got the opportunity to go into law enforcement, which was something that I had always wanted to do. So I spent 10 years in law enforcement uh, after being in public education for 28 years. And then I retired from law enforcement. But while I was in law enforcement, I did serve as a uh, firearms instructor, uh, also held certificates as a sniper and a sniper operations officer. And I currently work in security and loss prevention for a private business. And then, of course, along with you, I've got the side gig of of co-owning and and, uh, instructing at Last Resort Firearms Training. And I've been a firearms trainer in the civilian world since 1995, so a little bit past 27 years. And that started with the Arkansas Concealed Carry uh, law going into effect, and then it just kind of branched out from there. But I've always had an interest in precision rifle as as far back as I can remember. 
Um, of course, you and I grow up hunting or grew up hunting and shooting, but I've just always admired the discipline of, of precision rifle shooting. Um, but I, I would like to say that I do not consider myself a precision rifle expert. I do consider myself a student of precision rifle. Yeah, sometimes an instructor, always a student. Exactly. So, so what what about the one-day class that you teach several times a year? It's, just, it's one day, right? What, eight hours? Yeah, it's, it's about uh, seven and a half to eight hours, and uh, we spend the morning in the classroom, which, depending on the class flow and questions, that usually runs three to three and a half hours. Uh, mostly it's just PowerPoint um, and me kind of guiding the, the lecture and the discussion based on that PowerPoint. Um, and then we take a 30 or 40 minute lunch break on site and that just enables us to get on the range a little sooner for the afternoon portion and we spend another three to three and a half hours on the range in the afternoon uh, engaging targets from 100 to almost 460 yards so a little over a mile well in the in the classroom portion that lasts say three to three and a half hours what what are we talking about what are we learning or getting better at in that classroom portion Okay. Well, um, I designed the class to, to just kind of explore the, the basics and the applications of precision rifles. So the topics that we cover are ammunition, of course, and ballistics, which is just the science of firearms and projectiles. Uh, we talk about rifle and scope familiarization, um, angular units of measure, and the two examples of that being either minutes of angle or milliradians, and every scope operates in one of those two ways, those, those, those two angular units of measure. Uh, we talk about scope manipulation and DOPE. DOPE is just an acronym that stands for Data on Previous Engagements. Uh, we talk about zeroing, shot groups, target analysis. We cover firearm safety rules, of course, before we go to the range. Uh, we cover shooting fundamentals, uh, and we just kind of lightly hit the topics of maintenance, cleaning, storage, and then, like I said, on the range, uh, we're engaging targets out to 460 yards almost. So there is some math involved in this, but it, it's math that even I could do, right? It's fairly simple math. Yes, and, and even math that I can do uh, as an English major in college. And, yeah. and I'm one of the least mathematically inclined people that you'll ever meet. So if I can do the math, anybody can do the math. Um, oh, and also um, in the classroom portion, everything that I mentioned um, we do exercise or practice on the range in the afternoon, but I also cover three additional subtopics that are not necessary to practice on the range in the afternoon, uh, but I just kind of felt the need to cover those in class so that the students would have that information and knowledge. Uh, we do also cover estimating range for shooting at unknown distance, you know, how to, how to estimate the size of your target and then estimate range to it. Uh, we also talk about estimating and factoring in the wind and what that's going to do to your shot. And we also cover high angle shooting. And I just recently added that in class because I've been averaging about one person in every class who goes out west to hunt in the higher elevations. And I just feel like it's important that those students know that if you're shooting uphill or downhill at an angle, um, the ballistics are a little bit different. Yeah, more about the science. I've, I've had several people t- take this type of training that said, man, if I knew I'd use math to shoot this well, I'd have paid more attention in eighth and ninth grade math. Yeah, 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 jokingly. Yeah, for example, with that, with the high angle shooting, what, what you're really doing is you're shooting based on the Pythagorean theorem. And I just remember thinking back in, you know, in geometry class, 
if I had asked my teacher, when in the world am I ever going to need to know this Pythagorean theorem? And if my teacher had told me you'll need it as a part of your sniper skill set, I probably would have paid more attention. And, and respected that teacher quite a bit more from that point yes. on, I think. Yeah. You'll need this if you ever want to schwack another person or shoot a deer at long range. Yeah. Um, when is your next class on, on this? Um, I just had a class two days ago, um, September 24th. My next precision rifle class is not going to be until December the 10th um, of 2022, of course, and that's probably going to be the last class for for this year of 2022. I'll schedule three more in the spring probably, but those dates have yet to be determined. So uh, Saturday, December the 10th, it'll be from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., Okay, so if you're if you know anybody interested in that, uh, mark that down. And if you just want to be interested, follow Last Resort Facebook page, and we routinely post schedules on there, so you'll know when others are upcoming. And it, when he schedules one, if you want in, you need to get quick because Mike, how many people do you let in a class? Only six, yeah, maximum so, of six, and and that's because I'm teaching the class by myself, which means that on the range I'm spotting for six shooters. And we do, for the most part, shoot in rotation, so I'm able to spot for six. But if I had more than six, I just don't feel like I could do everyone justice. Yeah, so, so when, when he schedules them, they, they fill pretty quick because there's only six slots that have to fill up. So right. check our Facebook page. If you want more information, you can contact Mike for that or uh, if you want to know our schedule or know when classes are coming up. If someone, their ears are perked up right now and they're like, ooh, that sounds like something I'm interested in, what kind of gear or equipment would they need to come take this class? Okay. They need a center fire rifle, um, no magnums, though, and that's just for safety on steel. Plus, we shoot somewhere in the neighborhood of 80-plus rounds for the class, and I don't think it would be fun shooting a magnum that many times. So a center fire rifle with no magnums, um, you need a scope that can be dialed, and I'm thinking probably at least 8-power magnification or higher because shooting out to 457 yards, uh, if, if you're if you're using a four or six power scope, it's going to be a real challenge. Uh, 100 rounds of match ammunition or hunting ammunition, if that is your application. Uh, you'll need a means of support for the rifle, which could be a bipod on the front, a bag for the rear, or bags for both front and rear. Or if you want to shoot off a rucksack, you know that's fine. Uh, you need note-taking material for the class. You need a calculator. Uh, the feature on your cell phone is fine. If you want to shoot prone, you'll need a shooting map, but we do have benches to shoot off of and uh, bring a sack lunch. And, and the only other thing I would say to bring would be just realistic expectations for your rifle system, whatever that is, because different rifle systems are designed for different tasks. And I've seen a wide variety of rifles in my class. Um, and I kind of I designed the class for really a true precision rifle class, but I have had guys come and take this class with like a 14 and a half inch barreled AR platform with with a one to eight or one to six variable power scope because that's their rifle and they wanted to learn to use it and that's fine if that's what you want to do. Yeah, it's not about being the best shot of the six in the class. It's about being get, getting as good as I can get with my chosen rifle and my chosen scope. Yeah, correct. Um, you call it precision rifle. What what is precision? What what does that mean? Well. A precision rifle, I'm not sure that there's a definitive answer for that. It's it's more or less based on shooter application. But I would say that generally speaking, if a rifle is capable of shooting one-inch groups or one MOA uh, size groups at 100 yards or even smaller groups than that, that would be considered a precision rifle. And, of course, not all rifles are capable of that. 
Well, you say you shoot out to 460 yards. How big are the targets we're hitting at 460 yards? We have we have uh, various size targets. Um, I've got like a uh, I've got a two foot by two foot steel plate that's got a cross on it. With, you know, dividing the plate into quadrants. But then I've also got smaller targets. I've got a half-size silhouette. I've got metal gongs anywhere from 12 inches down to 4 inches. And uh, at the farthest berm, I've also got a half-size pig and a half-size coyote silhouette. What's the smallest target at 460 yards that the students are hitting? Um, The smallest target is a 4-inch disc. 4 inches diameter steel target at 460 yards. Yes, which is smaller than one MOA at that distance. And that's with wind and whatever other weather things are going on at the time. Yes. Wow. Okay. And so we're talking about uh, getting a zero and then not just applying Kentucky windage, aiming a little high, aiming a little low, but actually manipulating the scope to get first round hits dead on. Right. 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 Before the class, before the class, I, I make sure that I ask each student, you know, what what chambering their rifles in, what bullet weight they're going to be shooting, whether they're scope dials and MOA or mil radians, and then I give them a rough preliminary dope card based on that information, so so that when they show up after we zero at a hundred, they have an approximate dope to dial at two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, and four fifty, which is where my steel targets are. And I'm usually, generally, based on that information, pretty close to what they need to get hits. We might have to make minor adjustments, but so far, everybody's been successful. Okay. Well, we've talked about the class. We're going to take a break. When we get back, let's talk about, okay, for somebody that comes and learns more, how could they use the skills and knowledge that they would get out of this class? How could they actually use it? After this break, let's talk about that. Ed Monk subbing, pinch hitting, guest hosting for Dave on his show. We talked about defensive handgun use, selection, and training. We talked about active shooter stuff. And now we're on the line with my brother, Mike Monk, talking about precision rifle. Precision rifle shooting. He's talked a little bit about the class, about the equipment you would use. So somebody that comes and takes this class, okay, I learned some stuff. I learned some knowledge. I've gotten some skills I didn't have. What can I do with it? What are some of the applications of this? Okay. Well, I don't know if this is a complete list, but these are the ones that come to my mind, and there are five of them. And, of course, this is the south, so I I usually think of hunting first. And, of course, within that application of hunting, there are different avenues that you could take, right? Small game, medium game, large game, exotic game. Um, And then there's competition. And also within that application, there are different avenues that you could take. You know, there's small bore, there's the Camp Perry-type matches, there's the Precision Rifle Series, and the list goes on. And then there's the tactical application, which probably makes you think of the military, law enforcement, security, and protective services. But it's rare, but it has happened in the past. There, are, there have been times when civilians have used precision rifles to defend their own lives or the lives of other innocent people. Uh, the fourth would be just purely recreational, you know, just going to the range with your rifle, friends, family, or by yourself and just relaxing and having a good time. And then the fifth one that, that I can think of is shooting pretty much just to promote the science of it, to do uh, 
research and development. And, and I refer to those people as ballistic nerds, and that's not a derogatory term. It's really a term of endearment. Because of those people, we all get better stuff. We, we get better data, better scopes, better bullets, better barrels because of what they do. So those are the five applications that, that I can think of. And one you just mentioned about actual civilian application against other people. It, it, we, you know, the last hour of Dave's show, which was two hours ago, I talked about the active shooter threat. And the uh, University of Texas at Austin, there were civilians who had deer rifles, you know, bolt-action scoped rifles in their trucks that actually got them out and started returning fire against the shooter up in the clock tower of the University of Texas at Austin. And then do you remember where the apartment complex was where the guy started a shooting and a, a civilian with a scoped rifle yes. got out and stopped it? If memory serves me correct, correctly, it was in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and it was in May of 2021 where a young man pretty much just went berserk in an apartment complex, was screaming for people to step outside. Unfortunately, some did. Uh, he did kill an elderly woman and might have killed more had not another apartment re- resident stepped out onto his balcony with a with a scope rifle and, and took out the shooter. There we go. So, yeah, it, it does happen from time to time. There we go. Um, so we talk about precision. What's the difference between a pre- precision and accuracy? They sound kind of similar. Is there a difference? A little bit. Yeah, I, I hear these terms used interchangeably a lot, but technically I don't think it's correct. Uh, the term precision actually refers to how close your point of impacts are to each other. In other words, the size of the group that you're shooting. Accuracy refers to how close your points of impact are to your point of aim. In other words, are you hitting what you're aiming at? So you could be shooting a great group, but it could be a foot away from your intended target. Um, So ideally, we want to achieve both precision and accuracy, but the order that you have to learn them is you have to learn how to be precise, which is based on your fundamentals, and then we can become accurate just by dialing our scope to adjust our group onto our target. Well, what uh, what is the what are the most important things? And this we may have to carry this over the break here in a couple of minutes. But what are the most important things that make a rifle system, which includes the scope, either more accurate and precise or less accurate and precise? For the rifle itself, I would say there there are two things. Number one being the barrel, and number two being the trigger. But I want to just quickly discuss them in the opposite order. Uh, because there's more to say about the barrel. Um, For those of us who have shot handguns, we know that one of the difficult things about mastering the handgun is you've got a two-pound handgun, and if it takes eight or ten pounds of pressure to press your trigger, it's very difficult not to disturb the position of that gun as you press the trigger because the poundage to press the trigger is, is heavier than the weight of the gun itself. Well, with the rifle, it's exactly the opposite. If you have an eight or ten pound rifle, but only a two-pound trigger press, it's very easy to press the trigger without disturbing the position of the rifle. And then back to the barrel. The the barrel is sometimes referred to as the heart and soul of a rifle. But regardless of the brand, the chambering, the, the composition, the profile, the length, the twist, all of that about the barrel, there's another part to this equation, and that is the ammunition. You've got to have a good ballistic pairing between your barrel and the ammunition that you're going to be shooting in your rifle. Um, And there's no substitute for this. Uh, Because if you have flawless fundamentals and you've got a good quality rifle and a good quality scope, but you don't have a good ballistic pairing between your bullet and your rifle, 
then everything that you're doing is a waste of time. And the only way to determine that, that good ballistic pairing is to just do a little research, spend a little money, buy yourself a small variety of ammunition, and just go to the range and do some trial and error and some side-by-side comparison and just find out what works best. Some experimenting, but fun experimenting. Oh, yeah, trigger time. Yeah. So you could have a good quality rifle, and I could have a different good quality rifle, but yours likes a certain type of ammo of the same caliber. Yours, just because of the barrel, yours could like a certain type of ammo and hit more consistently and precise with it than mine does with the same ammo just because they're different. Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. Yeah. And then... And then for the scope, I would say probably the, the top two qualities of a good scope would be good quality glass. And, and, and by good quality glass, I'm talking about, you know, seeing a good image through the scope. Nothing's distorted. There's no fisheye effect. You're, you're not seeing a, a, a color distortion. You're seeing good contrast, good clarity. And then the second thing about a scope to me would be that the turrets have true repeatable calibrations okay in other let's, words let's take a pause here let's t- do okay. more on the scope when we come back from the break Back on the show, Ed Monk, guest hosting for Dave. We're talking with my brother, Mike Monk, about precision rifle shooting. I shot precision close-range rifle competitively in high school and college, but that was air rifles and rimfire. It was open sights at 10 yards, shooting very, very precisely at 10 yards. This is about shooting in much longer ranges. So, Mike, we left the break talking about scopes. If I'm going to go buy my first scope or I want to upgrade and improve my scope, what are the things that I'm looking for? Well, there are just so many options on the market today as far as brands and models. But, but again, I would say there, there are two things. Number one would be good quality glass, meaning that as you look through your scope, you, you see a good, clear, crisp image of your target. You don't see any distortion. There's no major color distortion, clarity, contrast, anything like that. Um, and then the second thing that's important to me is that your turrets, which are the, the knobs that you dial for your elevation and windage, those turrets need to have true, repeatable calibrations. In other words, if each click is supposed to adjust uh, your point of impact a quarter MOA at 100 yards, it actually does that. And it does it every time. Because if it doesn't do that, it's going to make it's going to make your math and, and figuring out your dope even more difficult if your scope's not true. Yeah, no, ma- no matter how well you know the weather and the effects, and you do your math, if the scope's not doing what you're telling it to do, then yeah, that, that's all gone. So yeah. if if I'm buying a scope on online, or if I'm in a retail store looking at it in artificial light inside of the store, how does how does somebody know it's good glass or it's not good glass? I'm not outside looking at a target 500 yards away. I'm inside of a store or I'm just buying it offline. Are there brands or certain things that, that could tip me off that it's better glass than average? I would really hesitate to mention brands um, because there, there are a lot of good ones on the market today. Um, I, I would say the best thing to do would be just, just do your research. Uh, online is, is a good place to look, depending on your source. If you have if you have friends, buddies, family who are into it, get their opinions on it. 
maybe even let them take you to the range and you know shoot their rifles, look through their scopes, and and just get an idea there. That way, that way you've got some hands-on experience at least to to, to base your decision on. Um, there used to be. Well, I guess it might still be somewhat true, but there used to be an, a sort of an unwritten rule that said you need to spend at least as much on your scope, money-wise, as you do your rifle. Um, depending on your application, I'm, I'm not so sure that that's necessarily true anymore because like with most things, as technology improves, costs usually go down. Um, and, and there are some there are some moderately priced scopes on the market today that you used to have to pay three to four times, maybe even more uh, a few years ago to get those same qualities in a scope. But I would say just do research, and if you can get some hands-on experience with a, with a buddy, then, then do that. Well, let's say I'm shopping for scopes, and I'm looking within a brand. I'm looking within brand A, within brand B, and I see this spread of money. I can pay down towards the bottom of you know their lower that brand's lower priced, or I can get really excessive and pay a lot of money for their higher price scopes. What am I paying for as the price goes up? In general, what 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 causes the price to go up? What am I getting for that? Basically, the two things that I mentioned, you're, you're getting better quality glass, and you're probably getting better quality turret calibration adjustments on it. Another another price difference could be between first focal plane and second focal plane in scopes. And, and we're kind of getting technical when I talk about these things, but if you, if you can imagine as you dial up your magnification on a scope, your target appears to get closer and or larger. With a first focal plane scope, the reticle inside your scope, which is your aiming device, it's going to increase in size along with your target. With a second focal plane scope, as you dial your magnification up and your target appears to get closer and or larger, your reticle remains the same size and does not change in proportion to your target. And there there are some advantages and disadvantages to both of those, and, and it would take longer than the time that we have to, to cover that. But that would be the third thing that you're probably paying for money-wise. And you do cover that in your class. We do cover that yeah. in class, uh, yes. So um, I've, got a, I've picked a pretty darn good scope. I've got a decent rifle. Now I've got to marry them up. So what about the mounting? What's the importance of that? Uh, pluses and minuses, mistakes people make, et cetera. Just if you're going to invest good money in a scope and invest good money in a rifle, do the same for your for your scope mounting system. Uh, because if you don't, then that's going to be the weak link um, in in your system. You want to you want to mount them together securely. So don't buy eight hundred dollar scope and a five hundred dollar rifle and try to buy nine dollar rings to mount them on Correct. your yeah. <laughs> I would highly discourage that. Yes. <laughs> the weak link. Yeah. Uh, You've talked about the gear. Uh, how how can people contact you if they want to talk to you about their gear or about taking a class or about recommendations? Okay. Uh, they can reach me uh, on our Facebook page. They can message me there. It, it would be Last Resort Firearms Training on Facebook. My email address is mmonk1960 at yahoo.com. That's mmonk1960 at yahoo.com. My phone number is 870-904-3053, 870-904-3053. All right, so y'all ask him about that. I don't mess with that voodoo and bloody chicken's foot and Ouija board, all that stuff with scopes. Um, you know, and, and I spent uh, 20 years as an armor officer on tanks, and we actually bore sighted and zeroed the main gun on a tank. What does it mean to zero 
the rifle? The term zero refers to the intersection of the shooter's line of sight and the bullet's trajectory at a specified distance. And 100 yards is common, but it certainly doesn't have to be 100 yards. It, it could be it could be less than that or more than that. But what that does, if you know where your bullet and your, and your uh, line of sight are intersecting at a certain distance, then you use that as your baseline for determining and dialing your scope's elevation turret to get hits on target at distances other than your zero distance. So it's a, a baseline that you can then make adjustments from. Correct. Okay. Uh, and without going into great detail, what what just examples of math, of different applications where math would be used to do the things you need to do? Okay. Well, I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but, but the math is going to start by knowing whether your scope adjusts in minutes of angle, which is abbreviated MOA, or milliradians, which is abbreviated MRAD, MRAD. Um, both of those are angular units of measure. And if you think about an angle, if, if, we, if we start the point of an angle at your rifle muzzle, and then as that angle goes down range, the two lines that form that angle are going to get farther and farther apart with distance, right? Well, minute of angle at 100 yards, it's such a slight angle that the two lines are going to be 1.047 inches apart at 100 yards. That's how slight of an angle we're talking about. Mill radian is also an angular unit of measure, but it's, it's a little bit more than three times that. At 100 yards, a mill radian, the distance between the lines of the angle are 3.6 inches. Okay, if you're the kind of guy that gets off on that kind of stuff, you definitely need to come take this class because uh, he goes into much more detail. What about the weather? What what weather are you taking into account, and do we do your students learn how to take into account to put it into their ballistic solution? Yeah, when it comes to ballistics, there there are really three different phases of it. There's the internal, which is what happens to the to the ammunition inside the gun. Then there's the external, which is what happens to the bullet once it leaves the muzzle and before it reaches the target. And then there's terminal ballistics, which is the bullet's effect on target. We spend 99% of our time talking about the external ballistics or the atmospheric effects on the bullet, in other words. So there's gravity, there's wind, there's temperature, there's elevation, there's humidity, uh, barometric pressure, and then there's a couple that I consider secondary because we don't shoot far enough here for them to have an effect, and that's the Coriolis effect. <laughs> oh, excuse me, Ed. Um, the Coriolis effect, and uh, I'm drawing a mental blank on the other. That's what happens when you get old. That's a, you get yeah. back on your meds, man. Talk to your doctor. At all. <laughs> and you know what's what's great now. I can remember as a young armor officer because we put barometric pressure and air temp and and ammo temp into our computer on the tank to, that calculated all this stuff. And you had to get this radioed to you. Now, how much of that stuff does everybody have on their everyday phone? You can. Oh, okay. The other the other that I couldn't think of is is uh, spin drift. Um, yeah, it, I'm not I'm not a techno geek when it comes to shooting. I'm pretty old school. Um, I do use one ballistic calculator, uh, but I just kind of use it to confirm and play with it. My shooting is not dependent on my ballistic calculator. 
but probably every every ammunition manufacturer that's out there has a ballistic calculator that's available and and you can you can download these things you can pair them to your phone you, you can get a heads-up display to mount to your scope and you you can you can use a kestrel which like i say i don't do because i'm i'm not dependent upon technology but there's all kinds of devices out there that can really take a lot of the guesswork out of it um, but as, as wonderful as those gadgets are you have to beware of garbage in garbage out because they're only going to give you information based on the, the accurate information that you have fed to them so if you're putting good information into them you're going to get good information back out to help you make your shots yeah, it's just amazing the information uh, that we have on our phones or can access on our phones today. And just to let everybody know, you can use some of that information to swack people uh, or animals or targets uh, far away. Much technology has helped us out. So this is a class, a one-day class you give several times a year. What about do you? I mentioned that we do private lessons, private instruction, one-on-one, or a couple, or sometimes a family, private instruction with handguns. Do you also do that with rifle? Absolutely, I can, yes. Uh, sure can one hour two hours day long but i i can really tailor it to whatever the person is wanting um but i would i would probably do like two hundred dollars for a half day or three hundred and fifty dollars for a whole day or, and if they didn't want to do uh even a half day if they wanted to do less than that then i could just prorate the price Okay, cool. So if you don't want to come to a class with other people at a set time, if you want to try to schedule your own uh, during your time, uh, contact Mike, and he can work that out. Uh, we get a lot of people that want, even though we offer concealed carry classes and enhanced concealed carry classes, and we schedule them and let up to 20 people in them, some people just want private instruction for a number of reasons. And so he can do that with rifle. We do that with active shooter training, uh, and we do that with handgun as well. Mike, anything yeah. else you want to tell? people about the class well if we have a minute i would like to plug a class that i'm not going to be teaching but i'm going to be hosting okay um, hey can you hold a- on to that thought and let us take our last break because if i don't heidi's going to shock the dog collar that she's got around my neck so we need to take that break and then come back and tell us about uh, that other class We're back from our last break talking with my brother Mike Monk about precision rifle shooting. So, Mike, uh, like I mentioned uh, earlier in the show, we host other people that we have trained with that we really like, that we think has something great to offer. We bring them in uh, as a service to let local people. So what have you got with rifles? What are you bringing in? Okay. On October the 15th and 16th, this is a two-day class. Um, we are hosting uh, Casey Pippen of Core Precision. Uh, he is going to be teaching a two-day designated marksman rifle or special purpose rifle class. Uh, for those who may not know, in the military, a, a, a designated marksman or a special purpose rifle is meant to fill the role between your standard rifleman and the sniper. So they're reaching out to medium ranges 
uh, and being more effective than the standard rifleman can be. So if you have a rifle that fits that profile, and you don't have to be military or law enforcement to take this class, if you have a, mil- uh, a rifle that fits that profile and you really want to get some good training on it, uh, Casey is a former Marine Scout sniper, uh, former overseas security contractor. He's also served as a law enforcement sniper and a sniper instructor. So he's got some real-world experience. So if you want to benefit from his experience and take this two-day class, um, look for if you're on Facebook, look for core, and that's like the Marine Corps, C-O-R-P-S, core precision on Facebook, um, and get in touch with him there. If you're not on Facebook, you can contact me, and I'll be glad to put you in touch with, with Casey for this class. Well, for those that don't know the terminology, uh, what, what kind of rifle generally is going to show up for this class? What is it generally designed for? A semi-automatic uh, platform, e- either an AR-15 or, or it could be a, a, like a three hundred eight AR-10 type rifle. Uh, it could even be uh, like a Springfield M1A. Uh, but it needs to have a magnified scope on it, regardless uh, of, of what it is. Um, and um, let's see, I, I believe Casey's requiring 300 rounds of ammo for this two-day class, and the price is $400, and I believe his maximum is 10 slots for the class. And I do know that he still has slots open. And how far out did do will he have him shoot in that class? Um, I don't know. It kind of depends on class flow and the success. Uh, I think last year... I think last year we only shot out to 200, but but we did a lot of positional shooting. In other words, we're not just laying prone or shooting off a bench. We're we're doing some moving around, shooting off some improvised support and things like that. Okay, so but it's, it's not it's like a tactical obstacle course where you're climbing over barriers and doing all kinds of. No, 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 yeah. no. Just okay. just a little bit of movement, shooting in some unconventional positions, but nothing that's just physically exhilarating. You know. Okay. Well, cool, Mike. Thanks for coming on uh, and talking about that, because I sure can't, uh, the rifle aspect. I may help him set up a class and swap targets, but I can't get into the teaching of that, because I don't do that kind of stuff. Appreciate you having on, Mike. Thank you so much. And for people that don't know us, um, you know, we don't, the training that we offer both at our facility and traveling around the country, the active shooter training, we don't, we don't do this to feed our kids or pay our mortgage or put our kids through college. Uh, you know, Mike's retired teacher, retired law enforcement now on his third career. I'm retired from the Army. So, yeah, we do charge some money for some of the stuff we do, but it, it's, it, we do this because we love it, uh, because we want to get better at it. We want to help other people get better at it. And I just want to thank Dave Ellsworth for giving me the opportunity to come on and sit in his chair with training wheels and the supervision of Heidi and letting me do this thing. So we've talked about defensive handgun use, selection, and training. We've talked about the active shooter thing. And maybe one thing to add to that is, again, everybody wants the easy answer. They want the magic pill. Just show me a check to write. Tell me what to buy to make my kids safe. Well, there is nothing you can buy to make your kids safe. There's nothing you can do to make your kids safe. There's things you can do to increase the security and lower the risk. And so people want to talk about hardening the buildings. We're going to put bulletproof doors on and bulletproof glass, and we're going to make you show an ID, and we're going to buzz you in. Well, unintended consequences. Uh, Locks are not generally the solution to this problem. High schools and middle schools, the shooter is a student of that school. So the shooter is already inside the building. So if we're going to harden the building and put in bulletproof doors and buzz people in, all that's going to do probably is delay the entry of cops and medics. 
So we have to war game this and what actually happens, not just think go down to Home Depot and buy some locks and we'll all be safe. Again, the lockdown, keeping people in locked classrooms doesn't protect them if the doors and the walls are not bulletproof. Parkland, he shot through the doors. Uh, Uvalde, the, the recent one, he shot through doors and drywall and hit people. Santa Fe shot through doors. Sandy Hook shot through doors. So just being behind doors and walls don't help us if they're not bulletproof. Well, by God, we'll get a grant and we'll make the walls and classroom doors bulletproof, okay? What if the shooting, the shooter starts his attack inside one of those classrooms? Not not as often as other places, but in middle schools, that has happened. Well, now, again, the bulletproof walls and the bulletproof doors are just going to delay the ability of law enforcement and ambulances to get in there. So what I tell organizations is hardening rooms and buildings is a double-edged sword. It's never a guaranteed right thing to do, and, and often it's the wrong thing to do. And specifically with middle schools and high schools, where your shooter is almost always one of your own students and is almost always already in the building with their gun, then you don't want to delay the ability of other people to get in. And that's a problem. Uh, Middle schools, for some reason, even though the shooter is still a student, it does not start in the cafeteria the way it most often does in high schools. Don't know why, Uh, but it doesn't. The biggest things to remember about the active shooter is math and time. Not all the other stuff that will distract us, background checks, uh, banning certain types of guns, mental health. It's math and time. Once he starts shooting, every few seconds another person's going to get shot. So the quicker we stop him, the lower the victim count will be. It's very simple math. Stopping him in the first 30 seconds isn't a guarantee of a single-digit victim count, but it's a really high success rate, which simply means the people there, the intended victims, have to be ready, be mentally prepared, be trained, and have weapons, whether that's guns or improvised weapons, ready to go and already be ready to immediately, ruthlessly, viciously, violently counterattack an active shooter when he start when he shows up. We're going to stop him. We're not going to get shot until someone else comes and stops him. If you have any more questions about this or you want to host a presentation by me, I go all over the country and do it. Be glad to do it here in Arkansas. Ed Monk at AOL.com. You can find Last Resort on Facebook. Thanks again to Dave and this station for having me on. Have a great Monday.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.